Welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click, the e-commerce podcast for brands looking for their next growth opportunities. If you're interested in improving your conversion rates, average order values, and customer lifetime value, head over to customerswhoclick.com where you can find all our previous episodes and get in touch if you'd like to learn more. Listeners, gather round. Today we're touching upon site design. And before you think, oh, just another chat about pretty buttons and snazzy colours, brace yourselves. We've got Ash Samwawala joining us, the main man behind Thrill X, ready to serve up some CRO design truths. Do we all fancy a sticky CTA? Absolutely. But there's more to it than following just a few best practices. Ash is here to enlighten us and give us a peek into the frameworks he swears by. Hi, Ash. Thanks for joining me. Would you mind just give us a bit of uh, an introduction to yourself, a bit of your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, 100%. First and foremost, very excited to be on today. My name is Arsh. I'm the founder at Thrillex. We're a UX, UI design and CRO agency based out of Toronto, Canada. So we're not only involved in the conversion rate optimization front, but also large scale UX, UI design. So everything from full scale website redesigns, mobile apps, and even dashboards, basically helping companies from that strategy to design to, to the development phase as well. And kind of my intro into this industry, my background is in business and marketing, pivoted my career into UX UI design, worked at a lot of large companies, including design work for Fortune 500 and 1,000 companies. And I realized that even these big companies don't make decisions based on data and actually throw things at the wall and use guesswork. And so since day one, our core mission for Thrillex has been focusing on that data-driven design and leveraging analytics to make all of our decisions, no matter what digital experience we're tackling. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, how, how do you get customers clicking? Yeah. So this is an interesting question. And the way that I always like to think of it is it's not like point A to point B, right? It's kind of creating an entire ecosystem of clicks to get that user to that end action, right? So yep. kind of shifting your mindset to think it's not one isolated interaction, it's micro conversions and micro clicks, right? The analogy I always like to use is imagine you're crossing a river, right? From one side to the other, uh, you can't just take one leap, right? You have to step on stones or logs uh, to get to that end decision. So yep. kind of thinking of that conversion funnel in the same way, like there's all these tiny micro decisions that go on in the mind of a user. First of all, can I trust this brand, right? Is, is the messaging clear? Does it resonate with me on the objection side, right? Like what happens if my product doesn't work or if I don't like it, can I return it? What's the free shipping policy? So all of those little micro decisions go on in the mind. And I think UX UI design is a big core aspect of getting those micro conversions and getting people to that that end action ultimately. Yeah, I think it's really important. Obviously, the goal is kind of conversion rate, AOV, making money. But yeah. that is done by getting someone from the homepage to a category page, from the category page to a product page. On the product page, getting them to look at various pieces of information about that product, look at the images. And it's good to optimize for that behavior to say, well, how do we get more people to click on product images? because we know that people who click on product images convert better, but then you still want to look at that end result of conversion rate, because if you increase the number of people who interact with an image, but then your conversion rate drops, you've done something yeah. wrong there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So like how, obviously I know the answer you're going to give it is a lot, but like how important is site design 
for a brand. And I suppose as part of that, I do specifically mean like the aesthetic design as well. Yeah, that's a great question. I think first thing is to kind of clarify the misconception around UX design and UI design, right? Like the common notion is that UX design is how it works and UI design is how it looks. And I think the two really go hand in hand because good UI design is also good UX design. Yeah. Right? Like just for example, if your button doesn't have a good color contrast and people can't read it, right? Typically, that would be considered UI design, but that's also a hindrance for people who are visiting the site. They can't actually click on the CTA button and ultimately convert. I mean, they can click on it, but they may not see it that well. Similarly, good visual design is also good UX design, right? If you have an upscale brand and your typography and your spacing is all over the place and it doesn't look uh, up to par, that's going to subsequently affect the user experience and ultimately conversions, in my opinion, right? So I think it is very important. The aesthetic usability effect is is very real, right? The idea that based on how people perceive a brand will also perceive how they experience that product to work as well. Yeah. So yeah, definitely very important. Yeah, I think you're right. And I guess ultimately, same with everything in CRO, really, it comes down to your business, your audience. If you like you said, if you've got a luxury, if you're selling luxury products at a high price point, and your website looks like it was built by an amateur, you immediately lose a lot of trust, don't you? Yeah. And likewise, if you are selling, I don't know, I was going to say phone cases, but actually, you can get some quite nice phone case websites that look good and do the job. <laughs> I don't know, selling something, a commodity, I don't know, plumbing equipment or something, and. Right you built a super aesthetic website, no one's going to look at it and be like, oh, you've got a pretty website. That's not good. But there's the risk that you're just taken away from what people want, which is just to find the product they want and buy it. They don't care about yeah. they don't care about the fancy stuff. They just need to buy a product. And, and just to kind of add on to that point as well, Will, I think this is something I always battle with too. Like there's this notion in the industry that you don't always need a pretty looking website, right? Like pretty looking website. There's a lot of ugly sites out there that also <laughs> convert well. But I think there's also, to your point, every brand is different. Every company is different. And making sure that those two things align, right? Yeah. Like the brand experience and making sure the user experience and visual design is up to par with that. Yeah. I think, I don't know how, how scale would work, but you know, like one of you've got pretty websites, which are very much focused on just looking good and that's it yeah. and they're not kind of tailored for ux i suppose right so stuff that looks good does the job no one's really going to complain about it move a bit to the other side and you've got websites that are looking a bit scrappy they, they do the job but they're looking a bit scrappy and yeah maybe that's where if you're a luxury brand you'd need to move away from and then the other end of that, at the far end of the scale you've just got websites that look terrible just they, they'll they still work i suppose but they look really bad i think one thing that i always came across when i was in-house actually was that, that i i found there was a difference between ux and ui people you had ux people who understood i suppose actually i remember it's reminded me of this article i read years ago about ux people should be ux architects not ux designers mm. right and that's the difference 
the a real like a UX person is just thinking about how does this work? What's the customer journey? What's this supposed to do next? It's almost a bit like the developer sort of role in that sense. Whereas designer is someone who just builds it and makes it look functional on the on the page. But yeah, you tend to get what we found was a lot of UI designers would be really good at making things look pretty, but they had absolutely no idea about UX. Right? And, right. and there was just no factoring in usability of a website and what, and what the customers are trying to do when they were putting their designs together. So yeah. uh, I think that's maybe the why there is this view that they are very different roles. One is a design role and one is a yeah, like an architect role, I suppose. It's more like a more wireframe, more like user journeys and things. Yeah, 100%. And I don't know if you agree with this, but I would say in the context of CRO particularly, there shouldn't be that divide, right? Like I think they, again, go hand in hand yeah. in the specific context of CRO. But yeah, in a workplace setting, a traditional job setting, it's kind of been separated and there's a line been put between those two titles as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think absolutely within CRO, I wouldn't want a designer who uh, will just design something. I want them thinking, how are people actually using this? I want them, well, the way, I mean, kind of the way we do it is we put together a brief with our hypothesis and requirements. Designer goes off, maybe makes one or two versions of it that we then talk through. But yeah, it's kind of their responsibility to design it and make it look like something that fits into the website but will do the conversion job that we're trying to achieve 100 percent. and then we pass it on to the developer who then who then builds it yeah 100 percent. what do you think about uh, what sort of frameworks do you use when you're approaching kind of that, that ux ui piece in terms of like how do you work out what to change yeah that's a great question i think a lot of brands also struggle with that right like you have all these different ideas of things that you want to test and change, and then kind of the prioritization framework based on that. So we used at the core of it, we use a PXL framework, right? So basically looking at things like, is it text above the fold? Is it immediately noticeable within the first five seconds? Is it adding or removing an element, right? So kind of those different criteria points under the PXL framework. And I think just kind of our spin to that framework, like outside of just using that baseline level, is really the usability side, like the UX heuristics. So thinking about things like the paradox of choice, right? Just giving an example here, one of our clients, we saw on user recordings that they had uh, five different bundle options, right? And we saw that people would either pause and hesitate and they would choose one of the lower priced options so the one pack or the two pack or they would just exit the site completely mm -hmm. right and so it's kind of this notion of less is more right and so we cut down from five to three we ran that a b test for a period of i think it was two to three weeks and we saw 53 56 percent jump in conversions just from that one change and a 13 and a half percent increase in the average order value right so it wasn't only conversion increase but also people opting for those higher bundle options as well. So yeah. the PXL framework traditionally might have identified some of those issues, but it's really that like UX framework that we applied and also usability testing where we're actually doing interviews with users, understanding how they interact with the website, and then translating that to the test experience too. So definitely think frameworks are important, but 
combining that with a strong focus on usability testing, which I think is often neglected, is a core part of our process. Yeah, I think you're right. We use PXL as a base of what we do as well. But obviously, there's other things which don't get picked up in that process, but we're looking at it and thinking, well, this, the website's missing this. We know this is something, or we're pretty confident this is something that will improve conversion, so we'll test it. Obviously, when you're going through the prioritization model, if something is not existent on a website, then it doesn't get picked up in heat maps, session recordings, and things like that. Right? So you do miss out. You can't prioritize it ba- based on that, but you can have a pretty strong feeling that that this would would be an improvement. So I suppose PXL is really good for helping you identify that an area is an issue and that people are struggling on certain areas of the page rather than exactly what that problem is. Because So from your example, the model doesn't really tell you that people are, there's too many options, for example. Yeah. It just tells you that people are struggling on that page with the bundles and it's up to you to then say, maybe we've got too many bundles here or maybe we need to use some price anchoring or something. So yeah, we use a lot. So um, one thing I found quite useful actually was we kind of used it for our like key focus areas as well, mm-hmm. rather than just on the individual experiments. So we do all the research. When, when we kick off with a client, we do a bunch of research and we'll say, these are the three big areas we want to focus on. One is social proof. Like there's no social proof on the website. So we need to make social proof a big focus point, whatever the other two are. And we'll score that using PXL because that allows us to say, yes, this came through user feedback. It came through user testing, came through this and this. And then we build our experiments through that. It's it's for the prioritization period itself, right? Like yeah. once you have all these ideas you want to test, what to kind of tackle first. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But what about best practices? This is something that has bothered me a bit. And I started actually, I started using the term standard practices on LinkedIn when I post content, which I think is the best, better way of talking about it. So yeah, my view in it is every website should follow standard practices for things like where is your search bar? Where is your burger menu? Where should your, maybe where should your logo be? Some checkout related things, the basic things, right? That just every Mm -hmm. website should have, please do not mess with them because your customers understand when they see this on your website, they know what that does, right? Because every website right. does that. So that's what I view as standard practice. But I know best practice is a term that pops up a lot. So yeah, what are your thoughts on best practices? Have you got some examples of things that get talked about as best practices, but actually aren't always that good? Yeah, yeah, 100%. So I think best practices are kind of like a double-edged sword. To your point, right? There's kind of like the baseline level of items that you should have on your site, not necessarily in a particular order, but certain elements um, that you should have um, to get that baseline level of conversion, right? So like hamburger menu is a good example. Like on desktop, you'll see a lot of sites with hamburger menus, whereas that's traditionally something that's ideal for mobile, right? And these are all things that you have to test ultimately. So I will say before answering this, the caveat is that you should always test everything because there's actually someone on LinkedIn, and I believe you follow him as well, where he shares these examples of things that are best practices that actually go the other way, right? And where conversions decrease. I, I don't remember the name, but it's always interesting. It's like shipping policies and like 
just certain things that people perceive to be standard practices. Is it the unexpected test result posts? Yeah, it's like a series. I think yeah, yeah, and it's always interesting. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's some stuff there where a lot of it, I, I wouldn't even consider it best practice. Like it's not stuff right. that you would just say, "Let's do it." In fact, when he describes the experiment, I'm there going, "Yeah, do you know what? That makes sense." And then right. to see him get them the, get a negative result or, or the opposite result to the, what they expected, yeah, they're like, "Well, yeah, this is why we test, isn't it?" I mean, the, <laughs> the amount of times we've run tests where. We've done the research, we've come up with the idea, we've run the test and the test has been negative. It's like, what did we do wrong yeah. here? And then you assess it, you uh, you analyze it properly, you iterate, you come up with a new version, which does, does prove successful. We have a few methods we use to try and avoid that happening, obviously. Just doing some kind of almost pre-test iteration, really, before we get going. But, right. but yeah, best practices. So have you got examples? Yeah. We'll yeah. There's some examples yeah, of things that are talked about as best practice but either they don't work or commonly don't work or do nothing yes so this is uh this is an interesting project it's basically like a shotgun shotgun product like for shotgunning drinks for people who know what that is basically like yeah drinking whatever beverage you want faster right using the shotgun product and kind of the issue with this audience with this particular brand is that people get sticker shock looking at the price of the product, right? Like they immediately land on the site, they see that price, and then compared to the alternatives in the market, they would either exit the site or just scroll through. And then after seeing price and everything else, they would just leave straight away. So traditionally, best practice and what we had originally on the site was the price towards the top of the site, right? Like easily identifiable, somebody can see the price and then they can choose whether to buy or not. And then after doing things like usability testings, recordings, seeing how far people are scrolling on the site, we realized that with our audience, we had to really build that baseline level of trust and really communicate the value prop of the product through things like messaging, through things like social proof, and push down that price as much as possible. Not like all the way down to the bottom of the page, but like strategically, right? Like building those trust points before showcasing the price. And through that test, just based on that hypothesis alone, we've seen an 80% plus increase in conversion rates, not just through one test, but multiple tests just based on that one hypothesis. Is that kind of moving the price down more towards the call to action? So it's exactly so when they're thinking, yeah, this ticks all the boxes. I like this product. I want to buy it. They see the mm -hmm. price when they're ready to click rather than seeing the price the first thing and going, oh, wow, that's expensive, and, and maybe right. just leaving immediately. Yeah, exactly. So basically, like it's the product thumbnails at the top. You have your description. Before that, you have a sliding carousel of all the people that have used the product, like UGC. Okay. And then underneath that, you also have a video section where you have videos of people that have used the product. And there's a scrollable arrow where if you click on that arrow, it'll open up more videos and then only do we show the bundles and the pricing. Okay. So we're basically forcing people to go through all the social proof, reducing objections up front, like free return policy, shipping, and then only do we show the price. Yeah. And so, so you, again, like every brand is different. Every audience is different. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So th there's kind of two things there. I think it's firstly, the price doesn't necessarily have to be the first thing you, you yeah. know, above the fold, very prominent, but also 
it doesn't need to be above the fold and the call to action doesn't need to right. be above the fold, which is another yeah. e-com best practice, which is, I, I suppose, kind of why we have sticky call to actions to ensure that yeah. the call to action is always above the fold. Right. Exactly. And we didn't want to mention price at all, like anything to hint at the price again in that early experience, like not only above the fold, but even if you scroll maybe one third of the ways down, like it's a very unique situation where again, like even our client was kind of pushing back and saying, Hey, Arsh, I don't know if this is the right decision, right? Like, I don't know if this makes sense. Like I've never seen a website where the price is this far down. So again, it's very case specific. It's very industry specific and audience specific as well. Kind of just on the other side, Will, like I think those baseline level of, of UX and UI design, I kind of think of it in like different buckets, right? In terms of items that you should have on your site at a high level, right? So number one would be crystal clear messaging. If I go through your site, I have no idea who you are, what you do, how you benefit me. That is something that needs to be included on sites at a baseline level, right? Making sure that messaging is clear. Just an example. Sorry, just, just, yeah, just go ahead. Make one more comment on the pr- the pricing thing before we move on. Sure. A lot of kind of info products, courses, yeah. stuff like that, tend not to put the price until right at the end. Once you've read all the content, right. you've read the everything you're going to get with the product, you've read a hundred different reviews, testimonials and everything. Right. It's only at the bottom that you get the price. And it's because people who want to see the price immediately are not the right type of customer because they're not that key. They're not fussed about the product itself because the only thing they care about is that price. And it's okay to put some people off because you will get those people who they're, they're not right. But yeah, what you don't want to do is put off people too quickly who actually could have been a proper customer because they didn't see that one review, which was perfect for them. Instead, they saw the price and went, that's a bit much. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. And then I think like outside of, oh, so so just going back to the example of messaging, like crystal clear messaging would be something like, what's the benefit I gain? So for one of our CBD clients, that was things like better sleep, reduced pain, less anxiety, right? So just conveying that through the site. Then I would say navigation, right? Like talking about, am I actually able to find the product that I need? Even when the website has hundreds of products, that's again, intuitive navigation would be considered a a best practice. And you can see that it's like going very high level here, right? Because within intuitive navigation, there could be best practices, but that's what you have to test, right? Yeah. I I like the way you've put that. It's intuitive navigation. That is the best practice. The best practice is not your navigation should be image-based or it should be icon-based or text-only exactly, or however you want to do it. It is... I remember, who was I talking to? Kurt Elster on the podcast. And he said, clarity over cleverness, right? Mm-hmm. I should be able to open up the navigation and immediately see the options, understand what those options are and what it's what I'm going to get when they click them. One of my biggest pet peeves with websites is when you go to a navigation and the collection pages are all branded terms and you've got no idea what they mean. You don't know what the difference is, particularly when it comes to like models of things. Right, so I guess really? let's, let's use iPhone as an option, as a, as an example. You go to the, you go to the Apple website, and you've probably got I don't, I don't know how far back they go with their stock, but let's say you get the option of iPhone 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, right? Five options. Mm-hmm. 
that works because a sequ- sequence there and you can go well i want the newest one i get the 15. Mm-hmm. the example of a bad website in my opinion would be having like the iphone alpha the iphone max the iphone screen i don't know i'm just a random <laughs> word after each one and there's just no indication yeah. of what the difference between these might be right right even i would say the iphone pro max i still think that max bit is maybe a little bit what does that mean but it's still you can still get the impression that it's a better version and therefore mm. if you want the highest spec you go there i remember when i, I worked with a custom pc brand a few years ago but three or four years ago now and one of their competitors did this. You, know, you opened up their menu and you had three branded collections, all of which contained branded models and no other information. Right. So you had about nine products that you could look at there. And from the navigation alone, you had no idea <laughs> what the difference was and, and which one was the more ideal product for you. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Cut a long story short. <laughs> Intuitive navigation, really important. But yeah, like that is the best practice, isn't it? Exactly. And and it's kind of again, like there's certain use cases, like again, the hamburger menu would be a good example, right? Like there are certain things that again, going back to the overarching best practice would be intuitive navigation. So using the hamburger menu on desktop as an example, just kind of digging deeper into why that's not considered a best practice is because you're adding another click presumably in the journey, right? You have to click on that hamburger, then go to the products. And so you can just eliminate a step in the journey. Again, this is very high level, but you always have to test these things, right? Yeah. Yeah. I remember on hamburger menus, website where the menu was actually in the bottom right on the mobile, on mobile, which interesting. initially you're thinking kind of makes sense. That's where your thumb reaches easily to so having the menu easily accessible could be quite good but they made it it was just a little circle right so it was not your standard practice icon so people didn't necessarily it, you didn't immediately know what that was when you clicked it it opened out several spokes out into the screen all of which had, did have a label on i think right? right and i thought this looks quite good and it kind of makes sense because it's in that that position on the phone for you that makes it easy to use but i also know it didn't work so it's it's a good example of if you move away from standard practices it's it's just that extra bit of thinking time someone has Mm -hmm. to do i can't remember the term that i came across a, a little while ago was in fact i even used it myself each person's got a certain amount of like attention for a website right yeah certain amount of credits that's that was what was used certain amount of credit to use Every action they take expends credits on your website. Some actions take more because they require a bit more thought. So like your bundle example, right? Choosing between mm-hmm. a bundle there required a lot of credits. And if someone was already low on credits because it took them too long to get there, then right. they didn't have enough credits to make that, that decision. It's kind of the same thing around why Zuckerberg and the likes all wear the same stuff every day, right? They remove right. that decision from their day to make sure they've got more energy for decisions later and it's kind of a similar thing yeah. if you make people think where is the menu like which mm-hmm. thing do i have to click you've immediately started causing problems yeah the credits is it reminds me of the micro conversion analogy as well right yeah. like 
it's all these micro decisions that people are are ultimately making. And then, yeah, just last couple of things outside of intuitive navigation, I would say would be like trust and credibility, right? Again, like baseline level of trust. If you don't have any social proof on your website where like it's all just about you and your brand, then that's kind of, again, not adhering to best practice, quote unquote, right? Like having some baseline level of this is what people are saying about my company and my brand, and this is why you can trust me. Yeah. And then on the flip side would also just be like a frictionless experience, right? Again, how do I get from point A to point B? Not in the least amount of clicks, but with the least amount of friction in the buying decision itself, right? So anything that is not adding value to my buying decision, can I remove that from the journey, right? I would say that would be, again, one of these core tenants of best practices. Yeah, so potentially having things like title and company in the checkout. Yeah. Right. If your audience is purely B2C consumers, you probably don't need either of those, right? I'd, I'd still test it to make sure, mm-hmm. but it's very unlikely you need them. I, guess, I suppose, especially these days with things like titles becoming a bit more difficult. And if you don't, if you don't provide all the options, some people might not be happy with that. And then if you've made a mandatory field, that then causes mm-hmm. a problem for people. So yeah, it, it, that's an interesting one that you've, the way you described it again, like removing friction from the thought, the decision process, not necessarily clicks. I think it's really important. I've used this example before, but best practice is the fewer fields, the better. Right. But it yeah. doesn't work like that. You fill out a quote for an insurance company that you, you're happy to fill out quite a number of forms to get a detailed quote back. If they just ask you for your name and your email address, you're not going to be very confident in the quote they provide you to insure your house. Mm-hmm. If that's all the data they've got. And, and just on the B2B side as well, like it's also balancing quality and quantity as well, right? Like you can cut down the number of form fields, but are you going to get the same quality of leads coming in through your website as well, right? Like that's something that we always internally at our agency try to balance and talk to the client about. But again, going back to the friction point, like if you don't need to ask for a phone number and it's not absolutely necessary as part of your sales process, then don't include it, right? Like it's, again frictionless experience. And if it is necessary, justify it. Don't just right. don't assume that your customer knows why you're asking for this. Justify exactly. it. Exactly. And yeah, it's why on a lot of Shopify websites you'll see it it will say something like, so we can contact you about your order or something like that, mm-hmm. which is probably fine. I think the Magento default one though is for order questions. It's a meaningless yeah, it's a <laughs> it's a meaningless bit of information. So yeah, but I, I suppose on the the B two C example of that is things like discounts or like are generally over incentivizing a purchase. You might get higher a higher number of conversions, and the higher rate of conversion may outweigh the reduced AOV. So you might still be mm-hmm. fine there, but what you then might find is people don't come back and make another purchase, and they might return more frequently. So actually, like on one end, your stats look really good because you're making a lot of money. But then right. when suddenly you realize you've lost a load of money because you've had to you've had to accept all these returns. Another example is like the timer on the cart, right? Like having the timer, like you're also rushing people to make a decision. And so again, it's like an interesting scenario where you might get more purchases, but 
those people might not be happier with the product. They might be less likely to return if they always see that timer there on the cart. So it's those nuances that are super interesting to to dig deep in. Yeah, because yeah, I think there's just a lot of context around timers that's really important. On a on the product page, we found it works really well to say, if you make your order by 5 p.m., we'll ship it today. Right. Or even you, or you, you can have it somewhere. It'll, it'll be delivered somewhere. Something like that. Something where it's not directly kind of pushing urgency in like a pushy way. Mm-hmm. It's just letting you know if if you're happy with if you've made your decision, just place your order today and you and you get it tomorrow. Whereas the stuff that doesn't yep. work so much. In fact, I, I don't think I've seen many examples of this at all in e-commerce where it's worked. Is timers that are kind of telling you you're going to miss out if you don't make your purchase, and a, a bit more the guilt part of almost it. more. Whereas <laughs> what we've gone for is just you will benefit if you make your purchase quicker. So one example was a client who had a basket hold timer in their checkout. We're talking about products that were taking three to six months decision process for people to buy. They were doing loads of research and there was no reason at all to think that you were going to lose your item if you took 15 minutes to to complete checkout. So not only did it add a bit of, just added something extra to the page, but it also added, well, it added friction. Right, because people were looking at it thinking, why do I need to make my purchase in 15 minutes? I'm probably going to because it doesn't take 15 minutes to fill out a Shopify checkout. Yeah, it was just, it was a strange message. We removed it and, and we increased conversion rates, um, which is great. great. But yeah, I suppose it's just another example of best practices where you see, if I, the apps is another conversation. Yeah, you just see people chucking apps, apps at a website installing the basic settings because an app promises a 30% uplift and then they, they don't right. get it because that 30% uplift happened for a different brand in a completely different yeah. category. But that's mm-hmm. what they used to promote it. Really quickly then, b- before we finish up, uh, we're just running out of time. Mm-hmm. If you could pick the brains of anyone in the e-commerce space right now, who would that be? So I was watching a, a podcast recently, the Obvi guys, right? My Obvi with with Ned from Enrock Growth. Yeah, he runs a CRO agency, and he was talking about this really interesting notion around website speed. And like, this is something I hear all the time. Where you know, like, if if your website takes one extra second or two seconds to load, it's gonna decrease whatever by X percentage, right? The number of people visiting your site, they're gonna exit, and so. Again, this is, he actually wrote a study on this, which like a research study where people don't account for the curiosity factor, right? Like people coming onto a site, they have that curiosity to see if they click on an ad, they want to see what that product is on the website. So long story short, it's just kind of blown out of proportion, like the whole loading speed. Yeah. It is important, but you don't want to sacrifice UX and um, everything else that comes with that. In in the same time, I think the, the guideline is like three seconds, isn't it? And it's like, well, yeah. I mean, if it takes five seconds, you're probably going to be fine. If it takes fifteen seconds, that's probably when you you're going to start losing people. Maybe ten seconds or more. But yeah, I'm I'm, I'm right. kind of on the same page with that. I think if every page took seven or eight seconds to load, that might be an issue. If the initial page mm-hmm. site load takes seven seconds. Getting it to six is probably not going to have much impact at all. I didn't think I wouldn't have thought. Yeah. Cool. Final question. If you've got one final CRO tip for the audience. Yeah. I would say 
focus on user testing and user interviews. I think that is often the most most valuable pieces of insight that you'll ever get, but it's also the most neglected thing that most people do. And one thing that we use a lot, which is very you know easy, is uh, userbrain.com, okay. where you can get testers as low as $40 per tester, and you can just set up screening questions and have them do some test and go through questions. Like yeah. That's low-hanging fruit. If you can't do that, or preferably you actually do user interviews and get people on a call, pay them for an Amazon gift card, and pick their brain and get them to go through your site, you'll get treasure trove of insights yeah. through that. And we have as well. Yeah, I found both really useful. I think great advice takes 20 minutes, half an hour per person, but the insight you get is incredible. Well, thanks so much. If anyone wants to reach out and find out more, what's the best way of contacting you? Yeah, so our website is thrillx, T-H-R-I-L-X, design.com. And my email is arsh at thrillxdesign.com. Awesome. And you can find me on LinkedIn as well, pretty active there. Awesome. All right, cool. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Arsh. Awesome. Thanks, Will. Take care. Well, that was a great chat about the world of sight design, uh, a tad more intricate than just slapping on some different colours, right? So the next time you ponder whether your CTA should be a shade brighter, perhaps give it a good think first. If you fancy a deeper chat about all things design, pop over to LinkedIn and give Arsh a nudge. Uh, got some thoughts to share, uh, a bit of feedback or a guess you're itching to hear from, ping them my way at willacustomersuclip.com or if you're feeling social, find me on LinkedIn. Stay tuned for the next episode with Lorenzo Carreri, in which we'll be talking about the incredible value of customer reviews. But until then, keep those customers clicking.